All right, so of course we know this morning is uh, Palm Sunday. It's the day that we remember and celebrate what we call Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And it does mark the beginning of Holy Week for us. You heard part of that scripture from the Gospel of Luke uh, read this morning. Um, But I'm going to remind us of, of one of the parts. This comes from the Gospel of Luke. Debbie, if you'll just give me the first slide. Okay. Uh, And it says, as as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. I think I got it now. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I want you to hold on to that. The whole multitude of his disciples. Because the account here in the Gospel of John says this, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Did you know that? Did you remember that? We don't always read from the Gospel of John. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The multitude followed Jesus because of the mighty acts that they had seen, including raising Lazarus from the dead. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It's a large crowd, a multitude of the disciples, of all who had chosen to believe and to follow him. They were excited. They were coming to Jerusalem for the feast. Do you all know what that feast is? Passover. Yes. So uh, this is an important, uh, an important moment. Um, and, and I want to kind of help us set up the, the context here. Just we can really visualize uh, what's happening. This is, this is the celebration of Passover. Uh, which marks when Israel was set free from slavery in Egypt. This is one of those like core identity memories. And they would make pilgrimage. Jews from all over Palestine, from all over the surrounding region, would pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jerusalem, uh, scholars think, maybe had a population of 50,000. During Passover, the number of Jews would rise to 200,000. And just people all over the city, crowds, excitement. This is, a, this is an important story that remembers their freedom and the faithfulness of God when God acted decisively in history in Egypt back then to set them free from Pharaoh. You remember in the, the multiple plagues, the last and final plague, the Israelites were instructed to take the blood of a lamb and mark it over your door so that the angel of death would pass over your house and not impact your family or the firstborn. And that was the final plague where Pharaoh finally let the people go. So Passover remembers that act of God, the faithfulness of God, and their freedom. So this is a really big deal. It's a really big celebration. And you can imagine the excitement and people from coming from all over. This would resonate with the people, even as they think back generations before. They think back to their, their ancestors that, that left Egypt, and, and they 
went into the desert and they received the law. I mean, they remember and recall the parting of the Red Sea and accepting the law and all of these stories that they know of their, their heritage and their ancestors. But this story would have resonated very much for the Israelites living and the Jews living in Rome then living under Roman oppression. There was a sense of excitement of this idea around Passover and our freedom celebration that if God acted decisively then in history, maybe God could act again to set us free now. And here's the thing, the Romans knew that. The Romans didn't like large gatherings of Jewish people celebrating things like freedom. There had already been skirmishes out in the countryside. There were some radical, zealous Jews that had tried to revolt and overthrow Rome's power and to kick them out of what they perceived to be their holy land in Jerusalem. And so you can imagine Rome would have been on high alert during the Passover celebration, knowing how important this was for their identity and their freedom and their history. You can imagine uh, just more security, uh, not wanting people to gather. It's no wonder that the Pharisees tell Jesus, rebuke your followers when they see this, this large procession and, and crying out to Jesus. It's, it's no wonder. I didn't read from that part, did I? <laughs> the end of Luke 19 uh, the whole multitude crying out, blessed is the king. In verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, to Jesus, rebuke your followers. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. It's no wonder that the Pharisees who sensed this pressure, who sensed the importance of, of Passover and the tension under Roman occupation, it's no wonder they would have said, tell your disciples, rebuke them. They're making too much noise. They're, 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 they're causing a stir. They're causing a stir. They're, they're bringing too much attention. It's a very volatile week in Jerusalem, this kind of stress and unease. Violence, Rome feared, could have erupted at any second. And yet here comes Jesus entering loudly and publicly with a multitude of people crying out Hosanna and calling him king. Followed by these people who have seen his signs and wonders and his miracles and they believe that he truly is the king and the Messiah, the one who can set them free. That's what Hosanna means after all, crying out, save us, save us. So, Jesus comes to fulfill the will of God and to complete what he came to do. Palm Sunday begins Jesus' last week on earth to complete what he came to do. Throughout this series of Lent, we have been talking about this ministry of reconciliation that has been given to us and how we can experience that with one another uh, through walking this idea, this path of repentance and forgiveness, we can experience restoration in our relationships today. The process is hard. It takes work. We have seen that. It requires humility and growth. But the hope is that as we walk through it, we may experience things like 
healing and ultimately reconciliation, not only with God, but we've been talking about being reconciled to one another. In Jewish tradition, Yom Kippur is known as the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. It was the holiest of days in the Jewish calendar when the high priest who made sacrifice, and now I'm like, we're talking about Passover, now you're switching gears. But we're t- when you think about repentance and being forgiven of sins, their understanding would be atonement, this Day of Atonement. It was the holiest of days in the Jewish calendar when the high priest could make sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people and to purify them. The literal translation means cleansing, a purification, a a wiping clean. The Mishnah teaches Yom Kippur atones for transgressions between a person and God, but for a transgression against their neighbor, Yom Kippur cannot atone until they make things right with their neighbor. That is, until they follow a path of repentance. Those five steps that we've been talking about, until they seek to confess and understand the harm they've caused, until they repent and start making different choices, uh, until um, they begin to make amends, and begin to live differently until they see this sort of transformation. Then Yom Kippur can atone for your sins against your neighbor as well. The prayers and confession of Yom Kippur Kippur can be like a washing away of everything done wrong, a spiritual reset button. Uh, One of the scholars I read called it like a disinfectant, (laughs) like a a cleansing, (laughs) a spiritual disinfectant. I thought, well, that's pretty good. And they would recall Isaiah, though your sins are crimson, they can turn white as snow, washed clean. This was the only day, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies behind the curtain, the only person permitted to do it, and the only day of the year that he could to sprinkle two types of blood, the blood of a bull that They had sacrificed as a ritual for him and his household and the blood of a goat that he had sacrificed uh, for the people, um, for every state's, everyday states and transgressions, whatever their sins. That's what the law says. That's what these two sacrifices would have been for. And they would confess their sins and two different types of confessions, purifying the space and also confessing the sins of all of the people, Israelites themselves in the whole community. The confessions for the people, this is quite interesting. If you didn't know this, I learned something new this week. When the high priest would take uh, to make confessions on behalf of all of the people on this day of atonement, it would look like he would take uh, a goat, put his hands on its head, confess all the sins of the Israelites thereby transferring their transgressions onto the animal, a goat, which was then sent out into the wilderness to wonder, which is the origin of where we get the word scapegoat today. Did you know that? You guys are really smart. Like, okay, all right, all right, scapegoat, that's fascinating. Someone didn't know that. Thank you, thank you, appreciate that. Confess all the sins on a goat, you know, like, and then, okay, that's pretty cool. Okay, atonement then is that we understand it's this process of reconciliation between God and humans to, to forgive them from their, for their sins. It quite literally means at one mint, to reconcile, to bring what was separated and broken 
back together. Of course, as Christians today, we understand that it's Jesus and his birth, life, death, and resurrection who atones for our sins. That he achieves this reconciliation between humanity and God. That that veil has been torn, that separated us from the holy of holies, that presence of God. No longer do we have this complex system of sacrifices for purification and atonement, that Christ acts as our high priest. And it is his work on our behalf through faith in Jesus that we are cleansed and purified and wiped clean, that we experience that atonement, that at-one-ment with God through Jesus Christ. Y'all are smart people. You know all that. Yeah. But you know, what's interesting is that there are lots of different theories, what we might call doctrines of atonement, lots of different understandings of really how Jesus accomplishes this work, of how he atones for our sins and reconciles us back to God. And don't you know, there are so many, there are almost too many to name, Cynical Rachel would say it's because it seems like us Christians are always looking for something to divide over into a different denomination and to argue about right doctrine and how does Jesus really accomplish this atonement. But more hopeful Rachel, uh, more, uh, I don't know, hopefully normal Rachel would say it's actually because of just an incredible amount of scriptural data and witness that we have that kind of shows us lots of different aspects of Jesus's atonement. And I would say that this is, quite frankly, a, one of the mysteries of our faith, right, of, of how Jesus really accomplishes this work for us. I understand that several years ago there was a teaching series about the different doctrines of atonement. We called it Kaleidoscope, because what, what does that require? If you, there's lots of different pieces and they all come together. You see through all of them. So there's value in each of these atonement theories. But scholars have argued about this for a long, long time. Is it Jesus's incarnation? Is it his life and teaching? Is it the crucifixion or is it the resurrection? Which acts of God through Jesus Christ really atone for sins of humanity and reconcile us back to God? This is a helpful chart that I found that I think summarizes just a few of these theories. Is it God becoming human in the incarnation? Is it his example and teaching and the performing of miracles? Is it his death on the cross? Or is it the fact that he was raised and, and came back and raised to life? You've probably heard of, of some of these before, or honestly, a lot of them may sound familiar. This Christus victor is the idea that Jesus had the victory over sin and death, that his whole life was this kind of cosmic struggle against evil, and he won. And because that he set us free from the curse of the law, Paul says in Galatians, he became the curse for us, we can experience the same victory, victory in Christ. And under each of these, you'll see... Lots of scriptural evidence that kind of support these different doctrines. The idea of incarnational atonement is that Jesus atones by taking on human nature. It was actually a human nature was the issue. That the will, Augustine says, was bent in on itself. That we couldn't even do good because we were so absorbed with our own sense of pride and ego. 
And it was really fallen human nature that was the issue. So that's what Jesus had to redeem, and he did it through the incarnation, by God taking on flesh. Anselm of Canterbury, or was it Abelard, who said, why the God-man, that God became man so that we might become God, and not like, but like God. Don't hear that as like heretical. (laughs) God became man so that we might become like God. And then we have this, if we move then to, okay, maybe not the incarnation, but maybe it's his life and teaching. That's what really atones for our sins. We see this moral exemplar that it's Jesus' life and death that revealed to us the love of God. So much so that we are just inspired to repent and live differently because we are so in awe of just how much God loves us. That's what the cross reveals, Jesus willing to die for us. You think John 3.16, 1 John 4, God's love revealed to us in the death of Jesus. Then you have the healing servant, still in the life and teaching of Jesus, that sin is seen as sort of a disease and grace is healing, so that Jesus then becomes like our great physician. There are some that argue that this is where John Wesley was. This was his theory of atonement. And then others will say, no, you can't pin John Wesley down. He's too cool for that, right? We want to claim him in lots of different ways. But a lot of people understand that this may have been uh, interpreted that this is where John Wesley fell. He, he talks a lot about being healed from sin, both of the Wesleys. If you listen to some of our hymns as well, there's this idea that we need to be healed and we need a great physician. Maybe this one's a new one for you. And I understanding of, of solidarity that, that Jesus stood with the marginalized, the poor, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, His death was the result of his life, that he was put to death by powers and principalities of the world who who were opposed to his way of life and his radical teachings and the freedom that he offered people. And we are then called to identify with Christ's suffering uh, and to stand with those whose experience of being forsaken parallels Christ on the cross, that, that we are called to then model that solidarity with the poor and the oppressed. And then you have these, and this is, you've probably heard of these before, kind of focusing on his death on the cross, an idea of a substitution or satisfaction theory where, where Jesus kind of pays that, the debt of sin on our behalf, that he takes our place, he substitutes, and he satisfies the justice needed. Some might say, which each of these can be problematic, but some might say that, that Jesus satisfies the wrath of an angry God for the debt of sin, right? Uh, that, those can become, thank you, those can become uh, popular today, especially uh, in different traditions. You hear, you hear that atonement theory. Uh, last scapegoat, that connects to our understanding of confessing sins on a goat and, and letting it go into the wilderness, that we have been set free from sort of that process of, of purification uh, and, and offering those sacrifices that Jesus becomes that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the last one focuses on his resurrection, ransom captive. That Jesus' death is the ransom paid to the devil or evil powers to free humans from bondage. This is the, where we get the understanding that in the resurrection, it was the devil who was tricked. The devil thought that he had won. 
But then, whoops, grave is empty. He rose from the dead. Didn't have control over Christ at all, as he might have thought. He thought that he had Jesus captive on our behalf, but he really didn't. This is a good point to pause and to plug that we are going to be celebrating Holy Humor again. Holy Humor Sunday again this year, the Sunday after Easter. It's an ancient tradition in the life of the global church where we celebrate the empty tomb through laughter and through joy and through this understanding that it's sort of like this great cosmic joke that Jesus is not dead. He's alive. And so if you've got the best churchiest jokes, you want to wear something funny, you want to send me those jokes, we're going to have a ton of fun on the Sunday after Easter celebrating holy humor. And don't worry, if you haven't heard of that before, we're going to do a little bit of education to that as well. This is like the fastest sort of survey you can have of just eight of the atonement theories. There's so much more to these, and I probably said some things wrong, and there are problematic pieces about each of them. But they all kind of each sound familiar in their own way. Maybe that you've heard some of these pieces, especially in some of our praise and worship songs or our hymns or through certain scriptures. And so which one? Which one are we to to land on? Which one are we to focus on? Which one are we to say, this is how Jesus accomplishes atonement on our behalf? None of them, I think, are perfect or useless. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm sticking with. None of them are perfect, and none of them are useless. They all profit us something for helping teach us how Jesus works to reconcile us. We shouldn't isolate one or dismiss the others, but I think the best atonement theory is the story of Scripture itself, all of them together, kind of like a kaleidoscope at work for us to understand the work of Jesus, not just on the cross, but in his resurrection as well. First Corinthians, Paul says, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The best atonement theory we have is revealed in the scriptures. And so we hold on to all of them. We use them that as all are profitable for our teaching and our edification. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day to complete the work that he had set out to do. And whether we understand it that he had to die or that he was put to death by the Roman officials and the religious leaders or both... He died on the cross and had victory over it to forgive us of our sins forever and for everyone. Do you know the procession of Jesus wasn't the only one happening in Jerusalem that day? Many scholars note that the tension and unease of that week in Passover, 200,000 Jews gathered from all over to celebrate the freedom they had and the faithfulness of God. Many scholars believe that Pilate himself would have left his cushy palace on the sea in Caesarea and come to Jerusalem to oversee the celebrations and the security himself. And if that had happened, he would have entered Jerusalem from the west. 
he would have entered from the west riding a chariot pulled by war horses. He would have been surrounded by a parade of Roman soldiers and generals who would be showcasing their military power and might, reminding you of who's in charge and in control. People would have gathered, as was customary, to to honor and welcome a traveling official or governor or even emperor. But declaring the power and peace of Rome and hailing the emperor as Lord and King. It would have been loud as well, people recognizing emperor, because the belief was for other religions and thoughts and anyone in the empire of the time that the emperor was the son of God. Marcus Borg says this, kind of listening and seeing, trying to visualize this procession. There would have been cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, helmets, weapons, banners, golden eagles mounted on poles, sun glinting on metal and gold, the sounds of marching feet, the creaking of leather, the clinking of bridles, bridles and beating of drums, the swirling of dust. Pilate would have entered from the west. And at the same time, it was Jesus who chose to enter from the east. Not riding a chariot pulled by war horses, but riding a colt. And not with the procession of soldiers and cavalry, but with a ragtag bunch of poor people from the countryside. People chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he, this one, the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. It's absurd. This this image, it's absurd, even comedic. Some scholars say it was intentional that Jesus chose this cult and, and did this on purpose. Debbie Thomas notes that Jesus' parade by donkey was a staged joke. It was an act of political theater, a demonstration designed to mock the obscene pomp and circumstance of Rome. And by choosing the vehicle, Jesus was drawing on prophetic tradition, fulfilling the scriptures because it's in Zechariah, that's not on there, who said the king would be on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The fowl being a baby donkey. So not even a donkey, but maybe a baby donkey. My friend said it would have been like Jesus riding in on a trike while Pilate chose a tank. (laughs) It's absurd. Maybe prompting the people and us still today to think differently, to see differently, to think, what? Why is he doing that? What What are we supposed to see? I think we're supposed to see what a true king looks like. A true king. A true king, a nonviolent king that announces his reign and his kingdom that would really bring peace. Not in the way that Caesar tries to, not by conquest and power and and control, but through humility and service and love and grace through the way of Jesus. So I have to wonder, did anyone get it then 
Did anyone get what Jesus was doing? Even the people that joined with his procession and, and his parade, did, did they get the joke? Did they see what Jesus was trying to do? I don't know. But we have this story in, in Scripture today where we can ask ourselves the same question. Do we see it? Do we get it? And at the beginning of Holy Week, as we prepare our hearts for the events that are to come, maybe we can ask ourselves, which procession are you following? Who are you crying out to to save you? The one promising to bring peace and prosperity by force? Or the one who's found among the poor and the ragged, everyday folk who invite you into relationship with him and all his friends? There are many uh, Christians, I fear, today who find themselves in the wrong procession, who want to be there, who are ready to take the world by force again to regain cultural prominence and control over others, power over instead of power with and for, like we see in Jesus. But Jesus reminds us this morning that his kingdom only comes through a life marked by humility and service and love. And his kingdom is the only kingdom who will have no end. All hail King Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are, that you are King and that you have the victory over all sin and death and destruction and the things that we wrestle with day in and day out. God, we know this to be true, and, and we give you thanks that you accomplish reconciliation with, between us and, and God through the atonement of Jesus, through your whole witness, through your whole life and teaching and death and resurrection. So grab a hold of our hearts this morning, God. Remind us who the true king is. Prepare us that as we walk this last journey on earth with you to Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday, through Holy Saturday, and yes, to next Easter, that we may remember what you came to do, what you accomplished, and how you invite us to follow the same way into your kingdom. Give us the grace and courage that we need that today, this morning, we may find ourselves in that joyful, even comedic, fun, ragtag bunch procession calling out to you and you alone, Hosanna, save us. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.